Again, good morning. Good to see everybody today. Um, We are continuing this morning in our series in Ephesians, which I'm really excited about. Oh, and thank you. I'm getting points to kids. Kids, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, If you are pre-K through second grade, uh, we would love to invite you to join us out on the playground for some time to play and some time to look at God's word together. So if you want to go right through that door, pre-K up through second grade, you can go right through that door. Mr. Rogers is going to wave his hand so you can follow him. Look at that. Look, he's so nice. You're going to love hanging out with them. Thank you, guys. You'll come back in and join us in just a little while. Okay. I'm still excited about Ephesians, though, so we're still going to do Ephesians. Um, uh, We are in our fourth week in this series um, on uh, Ephesians. We're calling it Life Made New, which is really pointing to our life in Jesus. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible to Ephesians. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, those words that Britt just read for us. Uh, Just a reminder, again, uh, I want to encourage you, be reading through Ephesians on your own. Don't let this be your only touch point. Uh, Read through it. It's uh, it's something you could read through in about 20 minutes. And so maybe five minutes, uh, you know, each day you could read through it uh, a little more than once uh, a week. So I encourage you to do that. There's also resources at ApostlesHouston.org. Uh, slash Ephesians. Um, so questions you can reflect on as a life group or individually or as a family. Uh, so just want to take uh, advantage of our time in Ephesians. And I want to just uh, begin by reviewing just where we've been. One of the things you'll notice as you're looking at Ephesians is that Paul really, he builds on one thing after next. It's kind of an, uh, uh, an argument. There's a logic to what he's telling us. And so I want to make sure we kind of track with that. And so here's where we've been so far. We started with the question of identity. Uh, Who are we? Uh, Many voices, including our own, trying to answer that question in our culture, in our lives, trying to tell us who we really are. But ultimately, we said we are who God says we are. So we looked at that in chapter 1, 1 through 2. Then second, we ask, so who does God say that we are? If that's who gets to say who we are, who does God say that we are? And we learn that we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, and we are sealed by his Spirit. Uh, that's chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that beautiful psalm we looked at. Then third, we let, uh, that led us to an even deeper question uh, underneath the question of who am I? Who is God? Who is this God uh, who is telling us who we are? And, and what we learned is we can actually know that God. Uh, we can know this God and we can know him better and better and better. Uh, that's verse 15 through 28 in chapter 1. And so this morning we want to come uh, to kind of the next question that leads us to, uh, which is how do we actually know God? How is this possible that we can know the God of the universe? How is it possible we can actually know and be in a relationship with God? So that's what Paul is going to begin to address here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So again, I just want to encourage you, have that open in front of you, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, I want to warn you, uh, as you may have picked up on, there's some very um, difficult uh, things that Paul has to say to us. So I, want to, I just want to prepare us. There's bad news uh, and it's really bad. And then there's good news, and it's unimaginably good. Okay? So we're going to have to work through the bad news, but then we're going to get to the good news. So just hang with me on the bad news. Okay? Deal? Okay. Um, so 
to start, I was thinking about this passage um, this week, and it reminded me of uh, that great story by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Word, The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm assuming most people have probably read it. You've probably at least seen the movie or are familiar with the story. But just to give you a little bit of background, just in case you are not, um, basically the, the gist of it is there's these four kids, and they find a gateway into this alternate reality, this other world, through the back of a wardrobe, uh, and this land is called Narnia. It's this alternate world full of talking animals and all these fantastic creatures. And I remember I read it as a kid. I loved it. I still love it. Um, in fact, we love it so much at our house that uh, in my daughter's bedroom, there's this kind of like little alcove, this little hallway, and this little space in the corner of her room. And we actually got a wardrobe, and we stuck it in front of the alcove, and you can't see that wall. And so we cut a hole in the back of it, and we put a slide in the back of it so you can crawl through the wardrobe into this cool secret space. So we have our own Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe going on at our house. That's how much we love it. So, so I love this story. Uh, and uh, there's so many things I love about it, and I love uh, the characters, these four kids. Having said that, um, there's always been a, a rough spot for me when it came to the character of Edmund. I do not like Edmund. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if that resonates. If you read the story, there's a part that just annoys me when it comes to Edmund, and I think that's telling me more about myself than it's telling uh, anything about Edmund. But Edmund, if you're not familiar, Edmund is the character in the story. He's disappointed with his life. He's frustrated by his life, and so he enters into the wardrobe, he enters into Narnia, and he meets this character called the White Witch. And the White Witch, what we're told is she's cast a spell over Narnia, and, uh, and, and we're told that basically she makes it always winter and never Christmas. That's kind of how they capture uh, what's going on. And so the White Witch, her, her goal is to, uh, to capture and slave and ultimately kill Edmund, uh, who is a human, and his siblings, his human siblings, to prevent this ancient prophecy from coming uh, true that would end her reign over Narnia. So the white witch deceives Edmund, and this is how she does it. She promises to give him whatever he wants. Uh, in particular, he wants candy. And she says, whatever you want. And he says, I want Turkish delight. Now, I, I tried to research Turkish delight. Apparently, it's not that great. I don't know why he asked for it, but apparently he was really excited about it. So let's just say candy. He asked for candy, right, which is what I would ask for. He asked for candy, and she gives him what he wants, right? And then she says, and I'll make you a king, and your brothers and your sisters will serve you. And he says, that sounds pretty awesome. And so, uh, she offers to meet his desires. That's what I want to highlight from the story. His desires are met and his desire for power in particular. You see that? Desires and power is what she puts in front of him. And so she seemed to offer him everything he wanted, but in truth, she enticed him to choose lies over what was true, self over others, and then uh, to serve her over the true king of Narnia, which we discover in the story is Aslan the lion. Now, hopefully I've given you enough to make you go read it if you've never read it. You should read it. It's an amazing story. But what happens is, um, is that Edmund ends up betraying his family. He's given over to this insatiable desire for this Turkish delight. Uh, he becomes a prisoner of the white witch, and he's under a sentence of death. That's where all this leads, by getting what he wanted and the power that she promised. That's where it actually leads. And I, I, I wanted to kind of tap into that story because what C.S. Lewis is explaining in Edmund is the human predicament, right? This is the human condition. We, we too, have traded lies for truth. 
or truth for lies, I'm sorry. We've traded truth for lies. We've betrayed God and one another, and we've become slaves to our desire and our pursuit for power and control and fulfillment, and we too are under a sentence of death. Right? That's the story. That's what's between the lines. This is allegory that Lewis offers. And what Lewis is telling us about humanity's problem with this fantastic allegory is what the Apostle Paul is telling us with a clinically precise spiritual diagnosis in just a few verses. This is what Paul says. He says the same thing that Lewis says, but this is how he says it. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. That's the bad news. You were dead. Now, what does Paul say that means? What does it mean, you're dead? Uh, In some sense, he simply means you're cut off from God. You're apart from God. And so no matter what your life looks like, how things feel, how good things are going or not going, you are spiritually dead apart from Christ. That is your condition. Um, And he emphasizes that because I think he knows our human nature is to tend to see ourselves, at least I know this is true for myself, We tend to see ourselves in the best possible light, don't we? We tend to see ourselves in the best possible light, at least as often as we can. Sometimes we have a harder time than others, but often we want to see ourselves in the best light. We tend to think of ourselves, in other words, as generally good people, right? I'm part of the good people crowd, and then there's all those bad people in the world, but I'm not one of them. I'm in the good crowd, and not only that, If I start thinking about the good crowd, I start, what, comparing myself to others. And so there's good people down here, and then there's, I'm probably here. I'm not up here, but I'm probably somewhere in here. We do those games, right, where we kind of think of ourselves in the best possible term. And what that means is we're rarely brutally honest with ourselves about how um, broken and sinful we really are, about the depths of our own pride and our selfishness, just how broken and sinful we really are. We don't even talk about it in the church anymore. We don't talk about sin, right? So many churches, they don't even talk about sin. And we don't want to talk about it, and it makes sense, right, that we wouldn't want to talk about sin. It makes sense because, truth be told, it's just so painful, isn't it, to deal with. I mean, to be brutally honest with ourselves is really hard to do. And it can be really painful. We prefer to know ourselves in a superficial sense rather than deal with the pain that we've experienced or that we've caused, the wrong that we've done. We'd rather kind of turn a blind eye to the character flaws in our own life. We'd rather whitewash our souls, in other words, than actually deal with the truth of our own sin. And, and again, it's terrifying if we really understand what sin is and what it's doing in us and how it's worked in our lives and how just it's just in everything, it's terrifying to try to face up to it on our own. And so that's why Paul uses such strong language. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Dead, spiritually and eternally dead. It means coming to terms with the fact that we are utterly powerless and hopeless apart from Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. What do dead people do? The answer is nothing, 
right? I mean, that's the starting point for Paul. You were dead. There's nothing you could do. I thought about this a lot this week because I looked out in my backyard. Have you looked in your backyard lately? Oh my goodness. Our yard is so dead. Everything is dead and they're not coming back. I don't care what they told you on the news, like what you're supposed to, they're, they're dead, right? I mean, and so Paul says, that's what we're like apart from Christ. We're dead because of our trespass and sin. And it's because the way we've chosen to live is in rebellion against God and his ways, and we've cut ourselves off from God, from life. God is life, and we've cut ourselves off from him, and we are dead. <clears throat> and so what Paul wants us to understand is that sin kills. It is deadly. It is not to be messed with. It is horrible, and it runs deep, and it runs wide in our reality. I heard one uh, pastor friend of mine describe this way. He said, sometimes we think of ourselves as kind of like we're out there, we're drowning on the sea in this chaotic ocean, and, and God comes along, and he throws us a life preserver or a lifeline, and he pulls us in uh, into the boat, and, and we're, we're saved, and that's not what Paul says. That's not what happens. Paul says, you are dead you have drowned, your body is on the bottom of the sea, lifeless. There is nothing of life in you. You're dead. And yet God reaches in and pulls you out and saves you from death. That's the picture we should carry in there. That's always stuck with me. And so again, it's, it's, it's not just spiritual sickness. It's not just you know, doing wrong things. It's insidious evil that affects every aspect of human being and every aspect of creation. It kills, we are dead. Okay, <clears throat> so that's his first point. That's his starting point. We are dead. We were dead. We were dead. Very important to distinguish. We were dead apart from Christ. Okay, so we were dead. Second thing in the bad news, so we can't go to the good news yet. We still got more bad news. So just hang on. Bad news is not only were you dead, you were captives. You were captives. Look what he says, starting in verse two. The following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Or in some translations it says, that's what we all were, right? We all were in that condition. And so the bad news is you were dead, but now he says you're captives. What are we captives of? He gives three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't know if you've ever heard that. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So in Christian thought, down through tradition of the church, this is, this is, this is how people have thought about the world in which we live, and the powers. Paul talks about the powers a lot in Ephesians. This is what he's talking about, either one or all of these. When you see the word, the powers, this is what he's talking about. And it's, it's almost, it's like this triple threat of evil, right, that you encounter all through the scriptures. This triple threat of evil. It's like the holy, uh, it's like the unholy trinity. Right? You got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and now you've got this. You've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so what Paul wants us to see is that these are spiritual powers of darkness, and he refers again and again to them. And so I just want to look at each one in turn real quick. So first he says, we are uh, those who followed the course of this world. What does that mean? So you might think of this uh, almost kind of like a cultural worldview. Like get, get that kind of in your head that, that tells an alternate story about who you are and your condition in the world. Uh, in our day, in the West, 
the dominant narrative is that of, you could broadly say, of secularism <clears throat> as opposed to you know, a Christian worldview. Secularism, and one of the key tenets of secularism is that um, autonomy is true freedom. Complete and total autonomy means true freedom. So what that means is this. It means to be human is to be free to choose who we are and how we live. It's freedom to choose who we are and how to live. And anything, in other words, because of that, anything or anyone that infringes on that autonomy is, by definition, evil in that worldview. Does that make sense? So that's the value. Autonomy equal freedom. That's true identity. Any threat to that autonomy is evil. And even if that includes God, that's the way the world thinks. If my humanity is determined by my ability to fulfill my natural desires, then a God who challenges any of my, quote, natural desires is intrusive and essentially anti-human. Salvation, then promised by Christianity, becomes a threat to my identity. You see how that works? Christianity becomes a threat to my identity, not a welcome means of transformation. I say that not because it's true. None of that's true. This is how the world around us is thinking and operating. And so when you're talking to someone about the gospel and they reject the gospel, sometimes it's because of this. It's because there's a twisted view in the world that actually God has become not a rescuer but a threat to my identity. And that's one of the telltale signs of running into these powers of the world. Uh, David Wells, theologian, says this. He says, you can always recognize uh, these alternate worldviews, these ways of the world, wherever sin seems acceptable or is held up as good and righteousness seems strange or is bad. That's how you know you've run in to one of these powers of the world. Paul says it this way in Romans 1.25. He says, the world invites us to exchange the truth about God for a lie and to worship and serve created things, including ourselves, rather than the creator. So this is the culture of air that we breathe, right? This is the worldview that we're surrounded with. And apart from Jesus, we're captive to it. That's what Paul's saying. So that's the first one, the powers of the world. Uh, second would be uh, the prince of power of the air, right? Satan. Uh, the world, doing a little out of order, the world, the devil, and we'll come back to the flesh. But the devil, the spirit now at work, Paul says, in the sons of disobedience. Uh, one commentator I, I read said this. I thought it was helpful just to understand what it means, the power, the prince of the power of the air. He said, in Hebrew thinking, Satan exists in the air, the spiritual sphere between earthly realms and heavenly realms, right? Between the physical and the spiritual, between uh, present and future, all, all that. He's kind of in the mix in everything, in other words. Like, that's what it means when it says he's the power of the air. He's at work tempting us all the time in every way to doubt the existence of God, the truth of his word, and his motives. That's what Satan does. So evil in the Bible, in other words, is not some abstract idea. It's, in, it's personal, and it's active, and it's always at work. A friend of mine uh, says this about, about kind of temptation and evil and Satan. He says, Satan is always over in the corner doing push-ups, just waiting for his moment. He's relentless. He's coming for you. He's not going to stop, right? He's always looking. He's always at work. He's the power of the air. That's what that's getting at, right? So while our modern sensibilities, even when I say the word Satan, even in a room like this, I know some of us are like, ooh, I'm a little uncomfortable, right? 
Because our modern sensibilities make the idea of Satan difficult for us in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of reasons. But let me just say this. It makes him no less real, okay? He is real. Satan is very, very real. And so we're in the grips of spiritual evil from which only Jesus can deliver us. Only Jesus can deliver us. And so we'll come back to that, the spiritual evil and Satan, and, and kind of because what, the way Paul talks about that is a battle. He says we're in a battle all the time. We're, we're not uh, under this power anymore. We're in a battle with this power, and he comes back to that in Ephesians 6 specifically. So we'll come back to that and talk about that more. The third thing is, so you got the world, the devil, and then the flesh. He says, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We've talked about this uh, already, the desires and the way that our desires are, are, are shaping our identity if we let them. The flesh here is getting at that idea. It doesn't just mean like our physical body. It means our whole person, our whole human nature. And that includes things like our cravings and our deep desires and our strong appetites that drive us to pursue apart from God what God alone can provide through his spirit and by his good design and creation. So uh, we're dead. We're captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil, to these powers that he talks about. Um, So is that the end of the bad news? No, there's more bad news, okay? So here's the last bit of the bad news. I told you there's a lot of bad news. You just got to hang. You just got to hang to get to the good news. So the world, the flesh, and the devil keep us in spiritual bondage on our own. We're powerless to break free from them. Uh, we're also dead, um, but there's more. This is what he goes on to say. He goes on to say that we are uh, something he calls children of wrath. He calls us, he says, we were children of wrath apart from Jesus, what in the world does that mean? Now, let me just say, first of all, it has nothing to do with kids, okay? So don't get tripped up by the language of children. Um, don't kind of knee-jerk react to that. What is he getting at, right? Children of wrath uh, helps to know what he said earlier in verse 5. If you look back up at verse 5 uh, in chapter 1, he says that in Christ, in love, we have been what? Adopted as what? Sons in Jesus Christ. In other words, Our new identity in Jesus is children of God. But before that, the reason we had to be adopted is that we were actually children of wrath. And what he's saying there is is basically that we deserved judgment and the consequences of our sin. That that's our inheritance under sin and evil, uh, enslaved to these powers. Paul makes it clear, we are all deserving of God's wrath. Uh, He says, all of us, again, also lived among them. That was our reality, and so it should humble us. But God's wrath is something, again, that we tend to avoid. We don't want to talk about God's wrath. It makes us really uncomfortable, along with the idea of sin and hell. And so I just want to say there's a reason for that. It's been abused. I grew up in a tradition where the wrath of God was used to shame and scare people and manipulate people. That is not God's heart. It's also true that because of the cultural influence of our worldview, we get really uncomfortable with the ideas of things like judgment or holiness, and we have to come to terms with those things too. But let me just say this. Faithful Christians, faithful Christians should not be embarrassed about the wrath of God. We should not be embarrassed when it comes to things like this in the scriptures. We shouldn't skip past them or try not to talk about or downplay them. Um, we ought to understand God's wrath as a good, as a good thing, and praise God for it. Let me just say that again. 
We should see God's wrath as a good thing, and we should praise God for it. Why? I love what John Stott says about God's wrath. This is what he writes. He said, God's wrath is not his bad temper. It's not his spite or his malice or his animosity or his revenge. It is never arbitrary. God's wrath is the divine response to evil. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. It's him being unwilling to settle with, to compromise on evil. He has worked to resolve it, and he condemns it in all ways, in all places, at all times. That is God's wrath. Is it against evil? And so we should be able to say, not flippantly, please don't misunderstand me, but confidently, God's wrath is good. We need God's wrath. The world needs God's wrath. Because a good God hates evil, because a good God understands, and an infant God understands more than we could ever understand about just how evil really evil is. It is terrible, and he hates it. And so wrath is the right response to the evil and the sin that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And if we choose self and sin over God, we make ourselves, as Paul says, children of wrath. Not just in this life, but for eternity. And we need to understand that. The Bible teaches that human beings are eternal beings. Isn't that incredible? We're not divine beings, but we are eternal beings. And that life extends beyond, in other words, this physical reality that we know now. And so we will spend eternity before a holy God, and that means we will enter into an eternal blessing uh, of God or the eternal wrath of God. Those who choose to reject him, to remain in sin and captive to evil, will experience eternal wrath. Hell is the inevitable consequence of one's choice to live eternally apart from God. Jesus himself said a lot about hell. And so we need to come to terms with this idea of hell, and we need to understand it rightly. Jesus actually says in the Gospel of Mark, he describes hell as a place of isolation and loneliness and despair and a place of pain. And he uses this this horrible phrase. This is what he says. He says, it's the place where the worms that eat do not die and the fire is not quenched. It's Mark 9, 48. That's how he describes it. Eternity apart from God. And a good God responds to evil with wrath because he loves us. And he doesn't want that destiny for us. Not now and not for eternity. And so this is the hard news. Paul didn't pull any punches. This is what he says here in chapter 2, that we were dead, enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil, objects of wrath. And this is painful to hear. It's hard to accept. And many won't. They'll reject it. But Paul's goal, we need to understand, Paul's goal is not to lead us to a place of self-loathing or of shame or of condemnation. Think of Paul here like a good physician. He gives us an accurate diagnosis, no matter how painful or scary it may be. He gives it to us in love. He gives it to us in love. Why does he give us this diagnosis? Because he knows the cure. 
and he shares with us the cure. The next two words, so that's the end of the bad news. The next two words that he utters in Ephesians might be some of those beautiful and powerful words uttered to human beings ever. But God, right? You were dead, but God, right? You were enslaved to these powers, but God. You were children of wrath, but God. But God, he says, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive again with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, man, I think he's on to something with this grace thing. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. God has rescued us from death, from the powers, from hell. Why? Not because we deserve anything, but out of his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness. That's the good news of the gospel. Paul hits on that love, mercy, grace, kindness. He says it over and over and over. Verse four, love. He saves us out of the great love with which he has loved us. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Do you know that he loves you? He does. You're precious. You're his chosen children. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, Paul will write later. Verse four, mercy. He withholds the punishment we deserve the just judgment we deserve because Christ took the punishment and the consequences of all sin and evil on himself at the cross. His mercy, his grace. He says it over and over, verse five, verse seven, verse eight. Grace, he gives us what we need. He gives us good gifts. He pours out himself to us in Christ for life in this world and life in eternity. And kindness. God's kind towards us. His compassion He's gentle towards us. He draws near to us, and his desire is that we would draw near to him. It's this intimate relationship that we're invited into, not because we deserve it, but again, because he loves us. And so what has God done for us? In a word, he saved us, right? He has saved us. By grace, he says, you have been saved. What does it mean that God saved us? Well, it means uh, he hasn't just saved us out of something, right? Paul makes that really clear. We're saved out of sin and out of evil and out of death, but he's also saved us in to so much. And what has he saved us into? Paul says God's salvation has saved us into three things. It's made us alive in verse five. It's raised us up with Christ in verse six. And it's seated us with him in the heavenly places, verse six. So this is what God the Father has done for us in Jesus. These three things, he raised Jesus from the dead, right? He raises us from the dead. He, uh, he ascends to heaven. Jesus ascends to heaven, and that's what we are told. We, we do the same thing. We ascend to heaven, and Jesus is where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and where are we? We are seated with him. That's what Paul says. And so God gives us his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. The spirit of Jesus is within us. And Paul says that means that what God has done in Jesus and for Jesus, he now has done for us in Jesus, those who are in Christ 
We've been raised from the dead. We are raised to heaven, and we reign with him. And so every time you see, and he says this a lot, every time you see in Christ, in Paul, that's what he's getting at. This incredible reality that we have been raised from the dead, we've been placed in the heavenly realms, and we are seated with Christ. That is who we are in Jesus, in Paul's mind. And so it means that what's transformed our lives is not believing all the right things or doing all the right things or even worshiping Jesus. Those aren't the things that change us. That's not what transforms us. What transforms us is that we are in Christ. It transforms us individually. It transforms us as a people. We are in Christ. We share in his resurrection and we share in his ascension and we share in his reign. And so in Christ, we're not dead. We're alive. We're alive Alive to God, to reality, things as they really are, the way the world it is meant to be and will be. Instead of cold, dead hearts, we have hearts that are alive, become sensitive to God, attentive to him. We love him and we love others. And not only do we have life, we've gone from death to life, we've gone from being enslaved, captives, to victory. That's what Paul says. Victory. We reign with Jesus We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. We sit on the throne with him. You and I have thrones. Not the throne. Don't get messed up. Jesus is on the throne, but we're seated with him. We have thrones too. Have you ever thought about that? See, the lie of the white witch to Edmund, I'll make you a king, was a a half truth. Jesus makes all of us kings, not just some of us kings. You are a king. We're not slaves to sin and to the powers. We are now over them. We reign with Christ, not just in the future, but now. This is what God's done for us. It's a gift. It's grace. We have been saved by grace so that no one can boast. Even the desire, even the desire to turn to God is a gift of grace. We were dead, remember? We were dead, but in Jesus, we are brought back to life, life with God forever, and that life begins now in Christ. So just to end, Paul says in verse 10 that we are God's workmanship. He says that because what he's already said and what he said just now. He's already told us who we are, that we're chosen, redeemed, sealed with his spirit, and what are we saved for? What are we saved to do? We are saved to do good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. As we said, that's what he says, that God's made you to do these good things in the world. Why? Because he's prepared these for us to walk in so that we might be agents of his kingdom in a broken and fallen and hurting world. We are new people. We're new people with a new life marked by grace and the power of God. And so what does that look like should be the question. How do we do that? How do we live out this life, this new life, this victorious life that we have in Jesus? And that's what Paul's gonna get into in the second half of Ephesians. But right now, Right now, what is his point? He wants to invite you just to receive that good news. Just to receive the good news of what he has done for you and me in Christ. You were dead, and now you're alive. You were captives of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You were free and live in victory. You were children of wrath, and now you are children of God. Know who you were. If I could sum it all up. Paul's saying this, know who you were so that you'll always remember and give thanks to Christ for who you are in him. 
Remember that you've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.